Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Today, you've just got Andrew, uh, so I apologize, but Paul is actually out doing some rabbit hunting this morning uh, with some of his younger family members. I am here, uh, and I'm going to give you a quick update on where everything is at for the state. I really don't have a ton of news. We've still got a lot of things in season. Um... Make sure you guys are paying attention to your regulation books because there are some things that are going to start going out here soon. Um, January 1st, rough grouse is out. Uh, you've got your muzzleloader season coming up for your deer, which is officially January 8th to 11th. So if you get a chance to get out there and uh, take care of business with that, it's always a fun one. The weather cooperates, which has been so warm. Um, but yeah uh let's see dove is going back out on january 1st as well um so be be cautious of that but you've got other things that are still out there uh, lots to do take advantage of the weather uh, i know paul well it's been we've been busy we're having families with young kids christmas is a huge time so uh, we've been a lot of you know, opening things, putting batteries and stuff, fixing broken toys. That's been a big part of our thing. Uh, haven't really been out a whole lot, unfortunately, but hoping to get back out there uh, here in the next couple of weeks. I've seen some pictures of guys out and about enjoying the weather and ladies, I should say. Um, so, so great, great work there, everybody. I will let you know that today's episode is going to be with Anthony Pappas of Heritage habitat and forestry. So Anthony is a, runs a consulting business on, on property management and that we had a really good conversation with him. And uh, I was really excited to learn and, and discuss some, some challenges and opportunities with within Ohio, as far as property management goes, especially if you are managing larger tracts of, of land uh, with tax credits and different things like that. So We've got that episode today. I think next week we'll probably get you a rundown of uh, what Paul and I have been up to and uh, kind of our year in review and things to look forward to. And then I can tell you we've got a really good uh, episode coming up with uh, Mark Wiley, who's a Ohio biologist in the turkey realm. So if you're a big turkey hunter, this was a fun episode to do. And uh, so keep your ears open for that coming up. But uh, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Go Buckeyes. And uh, we'll talk to you guys all next week. Take care.
What's up, everybody? Today we are here with Paul and Andrew and our guest, Anthony Pappas of Heritage Habitat and Forestry. Anthony is joining us today. Hopefully we can keep the connection. He's uh, out, out in the field. So, Anthony, what's going on, man? How's it going, guys? Happy to be here. Yes, thank you very much. So, now, Anthony, you you reached out to us and uh, we found a way to here to get, get everybody put together. But do you want to give us a rundown of what Heritage Habitat and Forestry is? Sure can. Uh, we are in a central Ohio-based forest consulting company. Uh, we specialize in sustainable and comprehensive forest management. And what I mean by that is that we're not solely focused on timber production or cutting timber. Our, our focus is on multiple use wildlife forestry. We want to manage your woods in a sustained and comprehensive manner to improve both timber quality and wildlife habitat, but without a strict focus on timber only. Uh, there are lots of treatments that we can do that aren't necessarily timber focused, but are more wildlife habitat focused uh, that we like to address when we're meeting clients on their property to, to manage their forest. Um, so we're not a, a timber as king kind of business. We're, we're more of a, of a wildlife forestry oriented company that does work statewide in Ohio, into PA and West Virginia as well. And it sounds like a pretty uh, specific line of work. So how do you, how do you get into that? What's, what's your background that in, in something like this? Well, I uh, went to school at West Virginia University, Proud Mountaineer. Um, after that, I worked for a private timber consulting company in West Virginia for several years. Uh, left that to go work for the state of Arkansas Game and Fish Commission as a habitat biologist, uh, where I managed several hundred thousand acres of uh, property, state-owned land for wildlife forestry. So sort of what I'm doing here, where we manage the 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 area for both timber production and wildlife habitat with a particular focus on wildlife habitat that was the primary goal that was the primary reason for a lot of our our management recommendations uh then i left there and uh settled down in ohio got married lived in my wife's hometown and i uh, started my own company heritage habitat and forestry where i took what i learned in both sort of the timber field and the wildlife forestry field and combined them um, and that's sort of my niche here is, is providing landowners uh, forest management that's not strictly based on timber production. Uh, we're not going into a property and seeing dollar signs and thinking, oh, man, they can really earn a buck by cutting all this timber. Well, if the forest isn't ready for the cut or if that's not the landowner's long term, you know, doesn't fit with their strategy and their goals, uh, then that's, you know, that's not a problem. Our, our main focus is is improving your quality of your woods to meet your goals and objectives. So are you working with landowners that are, are these large tracts of land? Are they, you know, small you know, parcels under 10 acres or what's kind of the, the standard? Anywhere from 10 acres to tens of thousands of acres. Uh, my probably our average landowner size, I would, I would say probably, 20 acres. Um, there is work we can do on, on small acreages just because you have a small woodlot doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do to improve the quality of your woods. Um, you know, same goes for 10,000 acres. You know, there's, there's management treatments that would fit both and some that are, are different for both, but anywhere from 10 to 10,000 and with an average, probably around 20. This, this show, obviously all about hunting. Um, 
So most most of our people that, that are listening to this, they're I, I would assume that their main goal is going to be improving wildlife habitat for deer and, and turkey. So if I've got you know 20 acres, uh to say southern Ohio, nice and hilly, and I come to you and say, okay, I want to improve the habitat for deer hunting. What what are kind of the first steps? What are the things that you're looking at when you do that original or that that initial kind of analysis of the of the woods? Well, the first step is meeting the landowner on their property and walking the woods with the landowner. Um, the easiest thing to do is stand in the middle of your property and look up. If all the crowns of the tree are touching each other, you've got a closed canopy forest. Most likely it's over mature and there's going to be very little available sunlight on the forest floor. You're going to be able to see maybe 100 yards through your woods. It's going to look more like a park rather than a forest because you've got way too much shade up top no sunlight on the ground to promote a desirable understory. So really a big thing a lot of landowners can do, regardless of the acreage, is cut trees. You just got to know which trees to cut in which areas and the best methods of doing them. Because uh, as a whole, a lot of the eastern U.S. is going to be overmature, over dense forest. There's not enough disturbance. So, so cutting trees, um, you know, certain species in certain areas, we're not just going through and, and cutting everything we can find. Uh, there's a, there's a place and a time for a certain species just to improve the available sunlight on the forest floor. We want, we want it to be hard for you to walk through your property. Now you might have four wheeler trails here and there, but over the grand scheme of things, it, you want it to be thick and preferably thick in native species, uh, you know, blackberry, or you get some shrub development like um, dogwoods or hop hornbeam, musclewood. There's all sorts of these different species that we're going to try to promote in these, these sunlight opened areas from removing some overstory trees, especially ones that are, are less valuable to wildlife like red maple. You cut a patch of red maple, maybe underneath, depending upon what's in your area, we'll see a, a development of a desirable understory in the form of brambles and briars and, and some shrubs. So really sunlight manipulation, that's the name of the game. Anyone can do that on any size acreage. So on the flip side of that, if you were to say, pick up 10, 20 acres of old farm ground that has nothing on it and you build a house and you want some area in the back to work with, or, or you don't build a house, whatever, you just let it grow and it'll just turn into a forest over the next 40 or 50 years. Or is there something you, you know, you do to help improve, um, you know, the, the species that are there to help, you know, speed up the process. What, what kind of things can you do on that end? Cause I know that I understand the idea of the seed bank and stuff, but at the same time, you don't, I mean, is there, and then there's succession in, in a forest, but is there something you could do to speed up the process? I guess is what I'm asking. So to, so to answer a question like this, uh, we got to do a little bit of time traveling and go back to pre-European settlement in the area. Uh, we had man-caused disturbance uh, by Native Americans. We had, you know, plenty of, of tornadoes. We had set uh, fire both by man and by nature. Um, and all that would influence the distribution and composition of tree species on the, on in the land. Um, fast forward till today, um, you know, 100 years ago, most of the east was clear cut, 100, 150 years ago. Uh, a lot of it was high graded, which means uh, you're taking the best and leaving the rest. It's a totally unsustainable and unethical method of uh, timber harvest that leaves you with poor, undesirable species left over. 
Um, and then over time, pasture land had come in, row crop agriculture. And then to answer your question, now we're sitting on one of that piece of farmland or pasture that uh, we're going to let grow back into a forest. So what do we do to manipulate the, the growth in order to create a, a desirable forest as opposed to something that is uh, very marginal for wildlife habitat? Well, the first thing is going to be to get rid of the invasive species. Uh, more than likely, any ag land, whether it be row crop or cattle production, is going to be littered full of invasive species. Uh, typical in Ohio is going to be uh, bush honeysuckle, tree of heaven, multiflora rose, Japanese barberry, just to name a few. A lot of those occupy field edges. And uh, as you're driving through the winter time, you'll really be able to tell because they'll be the only things with green leaves on them. Uh, more than likely, what you're looking at is a non-native invasive species that's got the green leaves on it when everything else has leafed off and is dead. Um, so the, your, your first thing is going to be to control invasives because without controlling your invasive species, you're not going to get any sort of desirable regeneration back uh, in that forest. It's going to be too much shade, taking up too much water, too much sunlight. Once the invasives are under control, uh, the next step is to look around what tree species are around the property. Uh, more than likely, in terms of forest succession, like you talked about, where a forest sort of goes through a, a growth stage, you're, the first things you're going to get after invasives are controlled, typically is brambles, briars, things like blackberry, greenbriar. You're probably still going to get multiple rows because it's, it's very hard to kill. And then you're going to start moving into a, a shrubby sort of stage uh, after maybe five, five to 10 years where you got things like dogwood, musclewood, uh, ironwood, uh, arrowwood, a bunch of these shrubby, bushy-like species that will produce the soft berry uh, that provide excellent wildlife habitat. And it's at this stage, this early successional habitat, that you've got great wildlife habitat. You've got a lot of, of bushes and shrubs, especially things like sumac, that will grow up and then the canopy will kind of be an umbrella shape. Uh, that'll provide food in terms of their, their seed pollinator habitat with their flowers, and then as well as cover, especially for turkey poults that can't thermoregulate when they're very young. So in the spring, if you've got an open woods and you don't have this sort of umbrella habitat where they can move underneath, but then still be protected from the elements, uh, a rain event comes and they get some wind, they're going to die of hypothermia. So having this umbrella-like habitat that's open enough below for them to walk through but yet thicken up above to protect from the elements, uh, make some really good uh, turkey habitat in those areas, as well as all the innumerable amount of songbirds that are going to be nibbling on these berries. Um, once you get past that stage, which if we're going to manage an old field, that's sort of the stage we want to keep it in, is this, this shrubby, bushy stage. Um, if you let it go and don't touch it, don't introduce any more disturbance or herbicide to kill anything, you'll start getting what are called pioneer species, um, you know, in terms of trees. Those are going to be your light-seeded species. So your maples, your ash, uh, not oak, not hickory, you know, think of think of light seeds that fly through the sky or, uh, or berries that, that birds may eat and then drop in the area. And then those are the tree species you're going to start getting. Some areas that sweet gum and yellow poplar, other areas it's going to be red maple ash and then some locust, whether it be honey locust or black locust. And it's at this stage that we start losing some of that brushy, shrubby habitat. These trees are going to start growing up. Um, and then typically at, at that point, 
if the, if that what the landowner is managing for is wildlife habitat, I'll recommend removal of these undesirable tree species via herbicide. We'll come in and either chop them down and spray the stump, or we'll use a hatchet, go into the bark, make incisions, and then spray inside the incisions. Um, and that'll remove these tree species and set back secession so that you maintain the shrubby, bushy, old field that produces very good food and cover. Um, without using herbicide, naturally it was fire. Uh, this podcast is not the time and place to discuss uh, prescribed fire in terms of the regulations for it and when to do it, where to do it. That could take up a whole you know, hour-long conversation in and of itself. Um, but without using fire, you're going to have to use herbicide. Um, and that'll manipulate the species composition and give you sort of the most productive old field that you can by just keeping an eye on, on what's coming in, what's seeding, and what's growing. You, what you don't want to do is just sit back and let it go because you're going to end up uh, having a lot of invasive species. It's going to end up growing into a, a forest of uh, shade intolerant species that are not very productive, like red maple and locust, stuff like that. So when it comes to controlling invasive species, um, I guess let's take one step back. Can you give us a brief rundown of the difference between a native species and invasive species? And I'm going to tell you right now, personally, I have a little bit of an issue with with how this is done, because it, to me, it, at some point, everything that was is native considered native now was probably invasive. Like it came from somewhere and it had to, you know, come in and take over. Um, but can you just get, kind of give a rundown of what the actual, you know, what people mean by that when they say native versus uh, invasive nowadays? So. To make it even more complicated, there are such things as native invasives. So I will back up even further and just a brief explanation, native, non-native is pretty self-explanatory. Um, native species, red maple, non-native species, Japanese barberry. Uh, a native species, eastern red cedar, Osage orange, they can be native invasives. Uh, they're not supposed to be growing in these big thickets. You shouldn't have three or four acres of nothing but red cedar. You shouldn't have three or four acres, nothing but Osage orange. Uh, because fire's taken out of the system, these native species can turn into invasive by occupying sites that they otherwise wouldn't have occupied under nature's disturbance regime. So that gives you the native, non-native. Uh, you can have native invasives, like I previously mentioned, and then your non-native invasives. A lot of ours come from Asia. Um, just you can tell by a lot of the names. It's either Chinese something or Japanese something, uh, Oriental Bittersweet, uh, Tree of Heaven, Multiflora Rose. Um, but the main thing with that is, is they'll outcompete your, your native species that have been here for, for centuries. Um, a lot of what we see in agricultural Ohio and cattle farm uh, areas is a lot of invasive bushes and shrubs. A lot of them come in via farming farming equipment. Others are from you know shipping containers, uh, just from international trade. Um, but they do really great in agricultural settings. They get you know a lot of that sunlight because you've got these open land of row crop and cattle, and then they'll slowly start making their way through the woods and now competing uh, your native species. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, and just the idea that like yeah, what is native considered? You know, plants that were here when when the Europeans arrived forward. That that would be my definition uh, of native is, is pre-European settlement or right at European settlement. And then shortly thereafter, your non-natives 
KMI, typically from Europe. Um, so, you know, if you only go back 100 years, well, then, yeah, a lot of what we have here could be considered a quote unquote native. But if you go back to, uh, you know, settlement era, I would consider it the species that were here prior to European settlement. Um, I mean, a lot of what we've got, we've gotten really only in the past 100 years uh, since the early 1900s with the explosion of international trade. Uh, has brought the majority of our of our non-natives uh, to this continent. And it's, I mean, there are some plants that are in, considered invasive that we actually brought here on purpose, right? So we brought for either landscape purposes or multi-flora rose. Is that one that the government introduced as a habitat thing? Or, I mean, I think, and I think down south, kudzu, didn't they bring that in for erosion control that kind of got out of hand? Kudzu is the, uh, the perfect one to, to describe this. It was brought in exactly for erosion control. Uh, realized they didn't do too good at erosion control. Uh, goats loved it. Um, so, you know, we got we got kudzu everywhere, planting it. Oh, look, it's going to stabilize stream banks, provide food for, for livestock. And then come to find out anyone that drives, you know, into Kentucky or south of that, especially deep south, you see entire hillsides, nothing but kudzu. Uh, we did the same with... Uh, other species, autumn olive, um, some some alders. Um, I mean, I could Japanese barberry. That's a that's a landscape tree that was planted for for yards. Uh, most most people probably have one in their in their uh, flower bed or or in their yard somewhere. That escaped the landscape. Birds would nibble on the berries, take them, drop them off somewhere, and uh, bam! Now we got Japanese barberry in the woods which again, most landowners in, in Ohio are going to have patches of Japanese barberry here or there. Uh, another one is, is Bradford calorie pear that was brought over as landscape uh, that was claimed to not be able to reproduce, but we soon found out that they were able to hybridize with uh, something we already had here. And I mean, now Mother Nature figured out a way to like continue going? Like, is that is, what? Surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, you know, when, when we don't... Uh, you got to make sure if you're, you know, even so this is a good time to talk about planting trees. If you're one to, to reforest an area or, or plant some, some wildlife specific trees, you know, even if they claim, you know, this thing can't reproduce or it's not going to cause an issue. It's not going to escape into your woods. Well, that's the same thing we said about a lot of species a couple decades ago. And even recently that have escaped into the woods and have hybridized with other things. Mother nature has a way, like you said, of continuing the cycle. So I always recommend that you look to, to a local nursery that's got local stock on trees that or tree or plants, you know, shrubs, whatever it may be that grow in this region. If you take something from, from, Kentucky or or Illinois or Michigan and try to plant it in Ohio, even that regional variation, uh, you know, may not survive just the different soil type and temperature that we have here. Um, or you're might be introducing something that's only found, say, in, in Michigan or Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, mid-south, and you're trying to plant it here for wildlife, and then it does escape. You don't want to be that guy that is the reason for uh, a certain species, species X that had gotten out over the landscape and we looked several decades later and it's like, Oh, that's when it started. So I always recommend, you know, local, local plants from local nurseries that, that are from this area, uh, not something that you can buy that's exotic. That claims to be a, a one size fits all great wildlife tree. You got to plant this because they're going to, they're going to eat the crap out of it. Well, if it's not native, I'm not recommending it. That's, you know, you're doing that at your own risk. So, uh, when it comes to planting trees, since you kind of got into that idea, 
you go through, you find some native trees that you'd like. Uh, you said go to a nursery, local nursery or something. Am I going down to Lowe's and picking out some, you know, different oak species or uh, where, I mean, if you've got hundreds, hundred acres, even if you've got 20 acres that you're trying to throw some trees on, that can get real expensive real fast. If, is there, is there any, like, I don't want to say cheaper option, but you know what I'm saying? More economical for doing large scale. So if you're doing large scale, you know, what we would consider reforestation, you're taking a site that's not forested and you're going to, you know, reforest it. Um, the first thing you got to do is make sure that the soil type is, is conducive to what you're wanting to do. Um, there are soil tests and soil surveys you can do. Uh, to figure out, you know, this is even a site that we're going to be able to grow trees on. If it's an old strip mine site, you probably won't have that good of luck. If it's an old uh, creek bottom that was pasture at one point and you want to convert to woods, well, you probably got some pretty good soils down there, you know, depending upon past use history. Uh, it could be two totally different things going from an old strip mine site or a, an old ag land site that you're converting. Um, in terms of the trees that you're picking, I, uh, I try to stay away from big box stores um, because we don't, you know, where do those trees come from? Where do they grow at? Uh, obviously, those stores don't have their own nurseries. They're, they're buying them from someone else. We don't know where those are coming from. And there have been instances without going into, uh, you know, name and names that some stores would purchase trees from nurseries and then later found out that those trees they purchased had a disease that wasn't native to the region that they're selling the trees in. So we had a, a sort of nation, you know, switch from one side of the country to the other, introduce this new disease, um, you know, from this, this stock of, of trees. That's why I'm always going to recommend local, a lot of state nurseries, a lot of states run their own nurseries. That's a great resource to start. Um, they'll have native species there. They'll have them in quantities um, that would make sense, especially if you're doing more large scale stuff. And then uh, in terms of funding, there are some funding opportunities uh, available through EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program that's ran by the NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service, that's underneath the USDA, Department of Ag. Um, EQIP is a financial program put out by the, well, it's funded by the Farm Bill in the prior year that will pay for conservation practices on your land. You would be applying to your local NRCS office saying, this is my property. This is what I'm wanting to do. Um, you know, I've, I've got a forest management plan in place or, or, or a wildlife habitat plan, some sort of approved plan that recommended I plant these trees uh, in this area at this spacing. And then it's a ranked, usually depending on the practice, it could be a ranked application where you're competing with other landowners in your area for the money uh, that would go to fund these conservation practices. Tree planting is just one of them. You could also get funding for invasive species control, for TSI, timber stand improvement. Uh, there's a multitude of different conservation practices that you could potentially get funding from uh, by having uh, an approved management plan in place and then applying at your local NRCS office. Uh, if you just Google NRCS Ohio, uh, you'll you'll be able to find your local office. You could call them and uh, you know they can explain it and probably a lot better and much more detail than I can. Um, but yes, there is funding out there. So don't think that, you know, you're doing this by yourself and there's there's no way I can afford doing this. You know, no one's gotten to help me. Like I, I don't have any advice or I don't have any, um, uh, any financial aid to help me, you know, improve my property. Well, there are 
people out there that, you know, can provide consultation advice and then funding for, for landowners. And you had mentioned with uh, off there and your service, is this like the, uh, the thing you were talking about with the tax credits or uh, refunds or some of the carbon programs, the same, same idea. Okay. So this is glad you brought this up because we're talking about, about funding. So uh, in the state of Ohio, there are two different, uh, tax savings programs for landowners that have wooded property. You have to have at least 10 acres of contiguous woods. Uh, the first prop, uh, program is called CAUV, Current Agricultural Use Value. Um, if you're a farmer, you're probably already aware of it. There's a agriculture section and then a forestry section. So if you're not making X amount of dollars off of ag on your parcel, you could still receive typically more than 50% tax break by having a forestry plan in place instead. Um, and what happens is the county will assess that property as an agricultural crop, as if it were, you know, corn or soybean, because you've got a management plan in place that says you're managing your woodlot. We provide those services, uh, you know, writing these management plans for that program, as well as another one called Ohio Forest Tax Fund. That one is administered through the Division of Forestry. That is a 50% savings, uh, no more, no less, 50%. CAUV is typically more. Uh, OFTL is 50%, and that's the same same deal. You have a forest management plan in place. Uh, you get that on file with the state. Your tax rate uh, gets cut by 50% on your qualifying acres. And that could help you, you know, with a lot of your conservation practices that you're doing on your property. Uh, our management plans, like I uh, said earlier, is, is based on, on wildlife forestry. We're doing not strictly timber production, but also habitat uh, enhancement and creation. Uh, you're going to have different recommendations based upon what your woods look like and based upon what your goals are as a landowner. If I recommend invasive species control or planting trees, well, bam, now you got a management plan that you could take to the NRCS office, apply for some funding for some of these practices that were outlined in your plan by a professional forester, um, you know, and save you money on your taxes while you're at it. And then to, to switch, you brought up these, these landowner carbon programs. And I know I'm throwing a lot at everyone. There's more information on this on our website, heritagehabitatco.com. I've got all this on there. Feel free to reach out to me uh, personally, and I can you know go into more detail. But the, the carbon programs, to keep it short and sweet without uh, boring everyone to death about the specifics of, of forest carbon and carbon credits, is that in a nutshell, landowners can be compensated for their, their property's carbon dioxide storage. There are companies that are willing to pay you uh, to, to lessen the amount of timber you're going to cut or not cut any timber or even pay you to, to control invasive species to improve the carbon retention of your property. So there's multiple ways that companies um, can go at it in order to improve the carbon dioxide stored on properties. And then that storage can be sold as carbon credits in the marketplace. Um, and without going into any more detail, uh, it is pretty lucrative for certain landowners. Uh, certain landowners, it won't fit their their goals is what they're trying to do on their property. But for other landowners, um, you know, it may suit your goals. But you can be paid for your property's carbon storage. You're basically being paid for your trees being trees. And there's really nothing much else that you have to do. Um, anywhere from a one-year term, 10 to 20, 40, and uh, 125. So there's several different programs. I can go into more detail, like I said, with some follow-ups, um, but I'll, I'll keep it kind of short. That way, uh, this doesn't turn into a real technical explanation. But again, another way to, to make some money off your property to, to improve the quality of your woods. It definitely sounds like a good program. 
it also sounds like a, a lot to deal with. So somebody that's uh, like yourself, that's been through it and understands the programs, that would be very helpful. So I know I, I do have a question about fire as a tool and I, we won't dive into it too much, but um, I, I do a lot of turkey hunting in Southeast Ohio uh, on, on state owned property. And last year um, spot that I've, I've hunted for a decade, I go into and it is like a, barren wasteland uh some prescribed burns had, had gone on and uh some of the people that, that i were hunting with were like oh, this is this is terrible this is bull crap and you know i I've, i kind of have like a, a a basic understanding of why we burn and then so what is the so when when, when the state or someone lander goes in they do a prescribed burn what is the immediate benefit how long does it take to wildlife and then what is kind of the benefit to the hunter and how long does that take? Okay. Well, uh, I'll start with saying that not all properties are going to be suited for a prescribed fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, depends on your specific area, your specific site, and what species are growing on your property. Uh, fire is is definitely, I would primarily use it as a invasive species control and then for, for resetting back vegetation for that early secessional habitat. Uh, that if if done, you know, in the spring, if we're talking spring fires here because we brought up turkey hunting, that initial fire goes through, it cleans up a lot of the leaf litter, a lot of your down woody debris. Um, it'll look pretty barren for uh, maybe a couple weeks, depending upon, you know, the soil temperature, how hot it is outside and how much rain you've got. Uh, but shortly thereafter, you're going to see a flush of fresh green growth. Uh, stuff that's going to be packed in nutrients, especially for wildlife, because it is fresh growth, as opposed to a property that hadn't been burned in 50 years. All off the, you know, fresh off the oven, fresh off the stove, as opposed to it sitting there for for, for uh, 40 years and getting kind of stale. So that uh, that fire is going to do several things, you know, based upon who the people are that lighting it what their purposes are but i can speak to my experience with fire i won't try to you know see well this is what the state's doing but my experience of fire we always did it for uh invasive species control getting rid of of a lot of leaf litter maybe we had a forest treatment where we cut a lot of cedar or we cut a lot of what if we had a, a red bunch of red maple and it was out competing all the the young oak maybe we'd go in and we we'd cut all the red maple and spray the stumps and then we want to get rid of some of the some of the down woody debris some of the slash we run a fire through it uh that would burn up that debris that would burn up the leaf litter and then like i said earlier you're going to get that fresh explosion of, of good growth typically in, in my experience i've seen it um you know within two three weeks uh there's places i hunted back when i lived in arkansas that we did a burn on and then i would go turkey hunt it you know the next week and you'd see all this this fresh growth there and that's that's where the turkeys are they're nibbling all the fresh growth. You really can't eat a dead leaf, but you can eat fresh growth, whether it be green briar or certain grasses, forbs, wildflowers, things that, you know, also provide good pollinator habitat. So it sort of just resets uh, the secessional stage, depending upon the time of year of the fire, how the fire was lit, how intense the fire was. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do with fire for a variety of reasons. It really just depends on on what the burn boss um, and, and and their guys are, are wanting to accomplish with the fire. Um, it's, it's different ways to light it to accomplish different things. 
Anthony, you hit a real key term in there uh, in that explanation. When it comes to pollinators, you know, as hunters, I think a lot of times we talk about oaks, you know, we're looking for persimmons, you're looking for, um, you know, certain plants. We don't take into account things like pollinators and forbs and some of these other important plants that are part of the ecosystem and the diversity. Um, is that something that your service offers as far as helping to, you know, improve habitat for, for honeybees and other, other pollinators and through the course of, of active forest management, uh, you're, you're going to see improved pollinator habitat, uh, just by creating early successional habitat. Um, if we're saving, you know, old field management, like we spoke about earlier, keeping those trees out of that field in of itself is going to improve the, the number of, of blooming plants that, that produce uh, pollinator habitat and practices such as edge feathering where you have an open field and you're going to feather the edge. So you go about 60 to hundred foot out from the field edge, about the height of a mature tree. And then you sort of parallel your field. You know, think of a hundred foot wide buffer that parallels your field. And then within that buffer, you're removing almost every non oak persimmon dogwood tree. So your non food trees, red maple, you're taking a lot of those out. If you've got, um, you know, some black locust, um, and really you're leaving shrubby species as well as oak producing and mass producing species in this sort of edge feather. And then that in of itself should also create, uh, opportunities for wildflowers uh, to grow because you've got this newly expanded sunlight coming in this area. And then you combine that with the field that you're managing as old field management. Now you've got a, a forb and wildflower heavy habitat type here transition to the edge, which is going to be your, your edge feathering sort of habitat. That's going to have a mix of some flowers and then mainly shrub like species. And then you go over to your forest after you make your way through the edge feathering. So just by having active forest management, you know, in the right places in the right time of year, you're going to improve pollinator habitat. Now, speaking of, of funding sources, there is funding through Equip for, for pollinator plantings. That, you know, there, there's a whole list of things that, that you could receive funding for to improve the habitat on your property through Equip. Um, it's really, it's a great program that, that's worth your time if you're a landowner to look into, see what's available, and then reach out to some people. If it's something I can't do, then I'll get you in touch with someone that can you know, I've got no problem knowing my limits. If it's not something that I'm able to, to accomplish for you, uh, then I'll, I'll get you in touch with who can. Um, but yeah, just active forest management is going to create not only, you know, deer habitat, which is going to be everyone's, most people's first thought. So it's going to create habitat for rabbits. Uh, if you've got quail on the property, pheasant, grouse, turkeys, and then non-game species like migrating songbirds. Uh, you know, a lot of them require this shrubby bushy habitat as well and they you know some of them like mature forest but a lot of them don't and having having this sort of checkerboard type habitat on your property where you've got a habitat type here type there type there where it's not all consistent you don't want to have your property where it all looks the same we want areas of heavy brush we want areas of of dense small trees and then yeah we're going to want some areas where we've got large trees especially like oak hickory forest but having this checkerboard type habitat is going to enhance the habitat, not just for, for game species, but a lot of the species that people might not even think about, like certain types of birds, a cerulean warbler, 
um, certain woodpeckers, uh, beetles. I mean, all, all, all plethora list of wildlife species is going to benefit just from having active forest management. You do anything with like stream restoration or? Do you- uh, no, we, we don't. Not in terms of, you know, restoring uh, the flow of a stream or ponds. No. Um, in terms of, of managing around streams, uh, there are certain forestry practices that, that we may not do right up against a stream in order to maintain the, the water temperature of the forest, of, of the stream, as well as uh, erosion and, and sedimentation uh, things. There are certain uh, aspects that you take into account in what's called streamside management zones. So you might have an area that you're, you're cutting timber in. Well, we're going to run a hundred foot buffer that parallels the stream. We're going to call it a streamside management zone, SMZ, that, uh, that we're not going to take any trees or we're, we're going to take fewer trees than we are on the rest of the property just to maintain sort of bank stabilization um, and some erosion as well as, you know, water temperature and the health of the stream as a whole. Uh, but in terms of, you know, if someone wants to put in a, a pond for, for wildlife, I, I'm not your guy for that, but I get you in touch with someone that is. So, um, you know, I want to help landowners as best they can, even if they, you know, don't hire us. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to help you out, you know, as best I can get you in touch with whoever it is that you need to be in touch with. Um, one thing that just came to my mind, uh, we're talking a lot about invasive species and we're talking about plants, right? Uh, invasive yes. species come in, in different forms, though. And I think everybody in Ohio is probably well aware of the old emerald ash borer. And the devastation that it caused over the uh, last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. But when it comes to managing invasive insects on whether it's for forestry or wildlife purposes, you know, is that something that you help with or is that, I mean, you don't want to go out and, you know, be putting insecticide in every tree over a hundred acres. Is it something you manage? And I know, you know, you've got the the hemlock woolly delgid, you've got the um, spotted lantern fly that, you know, starting to pop up, uh, you're still going to, you're going to have the emerald ash borer forever, as far as I'm concerned, but there's other bugs out there to be concerned about. Is that something, you know, you include in your management programs? So, um, kind of take it case by case. If you're talking emerald ash borer, the, uh, something you could do that immediately sort of mitigates the damage they would cause is to thin out your ash trees. If you've got a dense forest of, you know, if say you still have live ash and it was a dense forest of, of live ash, well, that's going to make a prime candidate once the, the boar gets there to just bump from tree to tree to tree. So the management recommendation in those areas is to thin out your ash, improve the amount of sunlight reaching, improve the amount of wind. Uh, if you're talking uh, fungal diseases and stuff like that, just having more sunlight and more wind move through the woods is going to you know keep some of that stuff at bay. And, and if you're talking beetles and insects and boars, same thing. You want to thin out your woods so it's not as easy for them to move from tree to tree, property to property. Same goes for some uh, non-native bark beetles that may attack pine trees. You know, if you've got a dense stand of pine and you're realizing there's a some pine beetle that's that's attacking your your pine plantation, well, then maybe it's time that we need to thin this out and and salvage what we can, and then hope that our thinning is going to lessen the extent of the beetle's damage. So again, just by having active forest management, you're going to improve the health of your woods in terms of more space, more sunlight, more uh, more wind moving through your woods to lessen the effects of some of this damage. Um, in terms of gypsy moths, spider lanternfly, and, and insects like that, really it's not feasible for a landowner to treat his woods 
for for an insect. Uh, the, the cost will be phenomenal. Uh, some states like Pennsylvania are actually uh, spraying for gypsy moth because they've got a pretty bad problem over there. Um, but in terms of what a landowner can do for that, very little other than keeping an eye on your woods, seeing if it's showing up, and then taking proactive measures such as timber thinning in an area. Or if you realize, oh, it's already here, this, this tree is being attacked by this bug and it's moving this tree, this tree, this tree. Well, then let's hurry up. Let's get a salvage operation. Remove those trees. Remove the trees directly adjacent to it. That way you've kind of maybe have, have staved off the attack. By um, so there's just a, a multitude of, of benefits from, from cutting trees down. But in terms of the, the insects, everyone's different uh, in regards to trees they're attacking um, and, and the management procedures for that. Uh, the Forest Service has a thing called Pest Alert. And uh, if you do Google Pest Alert fact sheet or something like that, you'll see these little one or two page documents that they'll put out that explains, look out for this bug. This is the, the trees it attacks or the plants that it attacks. This is how it kills it. And this is how to mitigate the damage. So everyone's different, just like every property is different. It's never a one size fits all approach. Um, but there are things that we can do as, as land managers to improve the health of the woods as a whole. And that would help mitigate some of these, you know, future attacks by invasive plants, insects, or, or wild pigs, you know, all sorts of things. What are we missing? Is there anything that we, we haven't covered? I mean, I, we could probably talk about this all day. Um, Paul and I both have worked in the green industry for a while and, and understand a lot of uh, the, the discussion points there and as far as the ecosystems go and stuff, but is there anything else that we need to cover or, Paul? I, would, I would say just uh, go ahead, Paul. No, I'm, I'm, this is a good interview. This is a great, great discussion. I would say just sort of as, as a closing point that most properties in the East, we, we do need to cut trees. Um, it's just a matter of knowing which trees to cut, why you're cu why are you cutting it, and the benefits of removing it. So it's never uh, willy-nilly run through the woods with a chainsaw and just cut trees because Anthony said so. It's we're going to take out certain species in certain areas uh, for certain reasons. So always, if, if, if you need help deciding, you know, what to do, seek the help of, of a professional forester or, you know, someone else that's that's experienced in this field that can help you sort of formulate a plan uh, to improve your property um, instead of just cutting trees to cut trees. There is a time and place for it. most properties need to cut trees, but you got to make sure that we're removing the right ones in the right areas. When you say properties in the east need to cut trees, are you talking the east side of Ohio, eastern half of Ohio, or the eastern part of the United States? Eastern U.S., okay. um, anything west of the Mississippi, totally different uh, ecosystem and forest types out there. Uh, I'm inexperienced in those forest types, so I won't get into, you know, western forest management. Uh, but yeah, east of the Mississippi, our forest in this part of the country typically are overmature, overdense, too much shade. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's important for even small property landowners to to come up with some sort of forest management plan. So yeah, even um, you're not gonna hire someone to go do it. If you want to go do it yourself, you know, there's apps that will show you will will do their best to to help identify trees and plants on your property by taking a picture, you know, download some of those, get a field book, um, and then just do some research on your on your own. Maybe look at Ohio State uh, extension, West Virginia University extension. 
on some of the publications they put out for, for deer habitat management or emerald ash borer control. Um, sometimes, you know, landowner, you might be able to do it yourself. Just walk out on your property and just, just learn what you're looking at, learn what the benefits are of those certain species, and then uh, learn your invasives and then how to kill them. Um, there's a lot of things you can kind of do on your own with, with the internet now and with a lot of this university publications uh, that can really get you a good start on managing your property. With, with your services, you can give us the program all the way, you know, the whole, whole nine yards of the management program to the end. Do you also offer, you know, just consultations and will you go out and help people identify trees and, and different things like that? If they want to DIY it, you know, what, they just have to get a very good feel for what they're working with. So not only are we offering the, you know, the services of a forest management plan, but even if, even if you don't hire us for a management plan, uh, I still, you know, give advice as best I can over the phone, through Zoom, through text, through email. Um, I'm only charging if I actually come out to your property. Uh, but if you're doing like a, you know, you're doing some forest treatment that requires you to, to cut these trees in this area. Yes, that's a service we offer. Uh, forest improvement practices is what we call it. Uh, we, we would charge you either based on the hour or on the acre, just depends on the type of job that, that you have. And then we would come out with you and, and, and uh, you know, help fulfill whatever it is, the treatment that you're trying to, to conduct. So not only are we writing management plans, but we will do some of the field work depending upon, you know, location, size, and what it actually is. Um, but, you know, in general, once we write a plan for the landowner, I don't want that to be the one and only time that we've had a, a conversation about forest management. Uh, he can call me, you know, a year from now or, or 10 years from now, just remind me who you are. And, uh, you know, if you've got questions about the management plan or something you saw on the internet or this, this publication or something you wanted to try, uh, that you saw in, in NDA or, or NWTF put out, you know, call me. Uh, even if you don't hire me, you know, I'm not charging for phone calls or, or you know, Zoom things, FaceTimes. I just try to help landowners improve the health of their woods um, for both wildlife and for timber. So, you know, use me as a resource. Don't think it's just a one and done kind of service. Wonderful. Wonderful. Give us your website one more time, Anthony. Yeah. How, how people can find you. It, Okay, so companies Heritage Habitat and Forestry website is heritagehabitatco.com. That's co. Email is heritagehabitatco at gmail.com. And then we're also on Facebook, Heritage Habitat and Forestry. And then you can call me directly at 330 419 1769. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time today, Anthony. I hope that. Uh... This has been good for you. I, I've learned something, so I'm excited to get get out and get in the get field again. Need the weather to cooperate, but we'll get there, <laughs> right? It, it won't be long. So, uh, Paul, if you don't have anything else, man, I appreciate it, Anthony. Anthony, thank you. Take care. Yeah, no problem. This was great. You guys have a great You yeah, too. Same to you. Thank you.